also I know that many of you are what we might call repeat customers, that you've been on a metta retreat before and had a sense of what this practice involved. But there are also a great number of you for whom this was a new form of practice. Even if you've done lots of mindfulness retreats, this is such a different practice. And so in the early days, there were many variations, I I know, certainly coming out in the interviews, but I'm sure in your thoughts of, you want me to do what? And for how long? You know, repeating these phrases over and over again, all the time, going again and again and again into the metta practice. And then, of course, the, the really important question, why? Why do you want me to do this? Why would I do this? Say these same inane phrases over and over and over again. What, what is this all about? Well, hopefully by this point of the retreat, you've all got a sense of why. Why we might choose to do this, to actually take a week out of our lives, a precious week out of our lives, and come here to Spirit Rock and say these phrases over and over again. Start to see the value of steeping the mind and heart in these words of caring. And I I use the, the term the other day, brainwashing, which I feel a little bad about because I know it does have some negative connotations, so I thought of a better one. Marinating. <laughs> We're marinating you in love. And it might, you might almost think of it as a pressure cooker, you know, because the heat really gets... Well, literally, these days, really being cooked. Um, but the heat really does get turned up as you say these words over and over again and come back to this intention towards kindness One of the things I love about metta practice is it begins to show us this really stark choice where on one hand we can treat ourselves with harshness and meanness and, you know, continual repetition of our faults and our flaws and our deficiencies or with care and with love. Now, sometimes it doesn't seem possible to the care and the love to be present. But here we, it really, uh, we get to see that it is and that we actually do have a choice. We do have a choice. And the more we commit to caring, which is basically what we're doing with this marination, we're just getting it into every cell of the body, this intention, this possibility of caring, we get to see that there actually is a choice. And whatever stories we have about deficiency or not good enoughness are just that, are stories. And actually, you know, out of previous intentions that we've made. Someone said this in an interview the other day, and I I wanted to share it with you because I thought it was great. He said, uh, you know, there's many of us of a certain age, and all of us eventually, who can apply for Medicare. But all of us, no matter what our age, we're all applying for Metacare. So here we are, we've all signed up. Can I have some? Can I have some of this Metacare? And it's the best kind of care there is. It really uh, can uh, bring so much health, uh, healing to our inner being. So that's the Metta practice, just a powerful, powerful practice to develop this sense of caring. The other aspect of this practice that at times, at times can be as important is the concentration aspect. And again, many of you may not have known that this was a concentration practice, that actually the repetition of the phrases and the deepening that can happen through that is also a really important part of the practice. Now we've said a few times that a week is a really short time to develop concentration. I don't have any expectations of people developing much in this area in a week. But I've seen that many of you have got a taste of what it's like when the mind comes together in the phrases, there's not a lot of effort around it, it just starts to kind of do itself. And we can get a taste of what it's like for the mind to have this factor of concentration get developed. So it's quite wonderful. The Buddha actually said, never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. That a concentrated mind actually has capacities that, from this vantage point, we can't even begin to understand. And so just getting a taste of that is uh, really helpful. 
So I see metta as this beautiful two-for-one kind of package. You get the metta feeling as that develops in the ways that it does, but it's supported by, strengthened by, and also um, a great benefit of the concentration. So really wonderful um, when they work together. Because if the metta's not strong, you can just know that you're developing the concentration through the repetition of the phrases, even if there's not a lot of feeling there. That's okay. It's actually great. It's a wonderful way to practice, to have that be okay and to continue the practice like that. And then if the metta feeling is really strong or if there's a lot of purification going on, you know that that's a really powerful and and helpful part of the practice. So whatever's happening, we can kind of feel okay about it. When I use this word concentration, it's a translation of a Pali word, samadhi. It's not a great a great translation, like a lot of the times we try to translate Pali into English. Pali is the language that the Buddha's words were finally written down in about 500 years after his death, not necessarily the language that he spoke. And it's often interesting to think that if we don't have um, a good word for what the Pali word is trying to convey, we probably don't have much a sense of what that is in our culture. You know, we we evoke words, we create words to connect with experiences that we know. And this experience of samadhi is not one that is very understood well in our culture. Better translations are unification of mind or non-distraction. When we use the English word concentration, it often has a sense of kind of bearing down or narrowing of focus. And samadhi doesn't have to have those qualities. It can be very spacious, very broad, very inclusive, but it means the mind is steady. The mind isn't um, frittering away its energies in distractions, but is actually collected um, and, and and at ease with itself. And so it's interesting to think that a practice like this, a practice like metta, can develop concentration because there's so much going on. I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, by now, maybe you've got a little more hang of how to do it. But as I've said, it's like juggling or the three-ring circus. It's like I've got the phrases and there's four of them and, you know, they each have different meanings and then there's the person and different people and the visualization and different visualizations and then the feeling, what am I feeling? And it's like you can be exhausted just thinking about what you have to do. So it's interesting that this practice will actually deepen concentration. Of course, the essence of it, of the concentration, is the phrases, that is the main vehicle for the concentration. Um, The feeling can also be um, a supportive of concentration, certainly some of the visualizations if they really get steady and clear, but the main vehicle is is the phrases and it's why we keep recommending to keep the phrases going, apart from the marinating aspect, which is also important, but to keep the phrases going. But there's other secrets to why metta is such a useful or good uh, concentration tool. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Because when the metta and the concentration come together, they magnify each other. One of the um, aspects of concentration is that the hindrances, those hindrances to clear seeing, to being fully present, they're kept at bay. They're not uprooted or eradicated, but they're temporarily suppressed. So greed, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt, when the concentration gets strong, they're temporarily suppressed. So you can imagine that if those qualities weren't active in the mind and heart, that the metta could really become steady and in the forefront. And so this is what happens when they come together. It's said that Whatever you bring into a concentrated mind really goes deep because it's not distracted. It's not uh, frittering away its energy. It's actually really collected around the object. In this case, the object is metta. So when they actually come together, it's very powerful. But there's other reasons why these two practices go so well together. Many of us think that the way to get concentrated is to grit our teeth and bear down and kind of hang on for dear life and just push, basically. Strive, make effort to get concentrated. This 
that kind of effort isn't in the lists of how to develop concentration. In many of the lists, what's the proximate cause for concentration is actually happiness. Sukha is the Pali word. This quality of happiness and contentment is what enables the mind to actually deepen into concentration. Well, metta is a happiness practice. What have we been saying to ourselves? May I be happy? So as we bring that quality to the forefront deliberately over, you know, over and over again, it predisposes the mind to settle into concentration because we're actually activating the quality that's so necessary. Now, of course, the other, another aspect of the metta is the purification that happens, which you've probably had the experience is not necessarily um, a support for the concentration. As we go through the, the shifts that happen, the openings, um, the emotions that come up, the grief or the sadness or the anger or resentment, of course that doesn't necessarily help the concentration. But our willingness to go through that process and actually transform some of the ways that we've related to ourselves, our experiences, or others, that is what's supportive of concentration. That letting go of some of the tensions or struggles that we've had actually allows the deepening to continue. So as you put these two or three, I forget how many I've mentioned, together, you can see why this becomes a really powerful practice to deepen concentration. It's a slow way in some ways to deepen concentration because of the purification that happens, because of the complexity of the practice and how most of us struggle with it a little bit in the beginning. But a number of you have said, oh, I can really hold on to the phrases in a much easier way than with the breath. The breath is so subtle and neutral at times. So it really gives us something to know. Uh, we can really tell whether we're connected or not. You know, in mindfulness, it can be a little vague at times and easy to space out. Here it's pretty clear. Are you saying the phrases or not? Are the phrases making sense or not? Are the phrases actually the ones you want to say or not? <laughs> and so you can tell, am I actually uh, practicing? And I, I, I feel from my own experience that the concentration that gets developed through our metta practice is more resilient because it's had to grow in these conditions that are quite complex, that work on all these different levels, as we've talked about over all these evenings of our Dharma talks and in the instructions. It's working on all these different levels, so the concentration is quite kind of malleable and resilient. When I've done breath meditation for concentration, it can often be, it's certainly simpler. Um, it, it can be more challenging at times because it's more subtle, but it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I, th- I think of it as more kind of crystalline. But in, because of that, it's a little more brittle. It, it's more easily broken. As you develop metta in concentration, it really has this stability to it because it's grounded in this sense of connection to our experience, a a basic sense of well-being or ease or trust that really supports the concentration. So it's a great, great uh, combination of practices. I got to experience this and the challenges of these both developing together on my first metta meditation retreat. It was a six-week retreat over at IMS in Massachusetts. And I'd always resisted doing metta. You know, the number of people who've said resisted it, count me on that list, you know. To me, it sounded like living all day in a Hallmark card, you know. We may every day in every way be better and better, and it'd have rainbows and little flowers and pink unicorns or whatever, and that's not my style. So I'm like, not going there with metta, but, you know, like others, realized that that very resistance was a message that was perhaps what I needed to explore. I was also interested in the concentration side of it. So signed up for this retreat, you know, sublet my house, got a, you know, a ticket with a six-week space between when I was coming home and started doing metta. And, you know, was trucking along. It was going okay. You know, someone today said, what was it? Uh, An okay standard of standardness. It was like... (laughs) 
okay, you know, I couldn't say great. It wasn't terrible, but it was just kind of there in the middle. But I could feel that the concentration was deepening, really could feel the effects of that. But I'd go into my teacher and say, well, the concentration's doing really well. Meta, uh, you know, and we'd work a little about this and that and try to bring the meta feeling up. But it was just always okay. Um, and then about two weeks in, I remember going into an interview with that basic kind of report. You know, uh, it's okay, you know kind of friendly, but not, you know, what I thought it should be or whatever. And my teacher said, well, why don't you try this? I said, okay, I'll try that. But as I walked out of the interview, and I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences, replaying everything that was said in the interview. And the main thing that I amplified, and probably even now I'm distorting what he said, why don't you try this? You know, and in my mind it was like, Maybe, you know, this final, you know, what's the last ditch effort we can make here to see if she can get this? You know, I'm about to give up, but why don't you just, you know, try this last thing and maybe that will work. And so I'm going down to my walking. I can remember it so clearly, just playing this over in my head. And of course, the thought's coming. He thinks I'm hopeless. You know, he doesn't believe I can do this. I don't believe I can do this. Why did I ever think I could do this? I was crazy. I was right. I knew I couldn't do this. I knew this was a terrible practice. I knew I was hopeless. I knew I was unlovable. This was a terrible idea. And here I am, two weeks into a six-week retreat in the middle of nowhere in Massachusetts, and I honestly had the thought, could I fake it for the next month and just... (laughs) actually pretend and would they notice if I just you know go in and say oh it's going really well you know it's going really well but mainly my thoughts were how how hopeless I was you know that this was you know I was terrible I was hopeless why did I ever think you know da 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 useless everyone else but not me I'm and I could see it was like standing on the edge of an abyss I mean it wasn't on the edge I was going I was on my way down and at one point and that I'm always so thankful for this moment of grace where I recognize what was happening. And I said, I know where you're going. It's a really familiar place. It's that place where you're worthless. It's no good. Everything is hopeless. It's terrible. You know, doom, gloom, just all around. Every, you know, depression, no energy, deflated, etc. But then I had the thought, You know, it's a very familiar place. It's very easy to go there. I could go there and wallow for quite a while. And what was interesting, I cut this in sort of happily, like, you know, you're terrible, you're terrible, you're terrible. Just beat yourself up. But somehow, you know, drawn to do that, wanting to do that, because it kind of affirmed my view of myself. But I had the thought, you know, you know that place. You could go there for an hour or a day or days or weeks. You've got another month. But at some point, something would change to give you a different perspective on this, something from the outside or something inside or time, and you'd come out. It always happens. Every time you've gotten into that place, you've come out of it somehow or other. What would it take to get from this side of the abyss to the other side without that detour, you know, into the morass? What would it take? And the answer came, I would have to accept myself. I would have to accept that this is a level of metta. This is what my metta looks like. This is what my metta is. This is what my metta... This is as good as I can do. If I didn't accept that, I do, you know, have to do everything that I said. I'd have to make it up or, you know, be miserable for a month. So I just made that resolve to accept that this is the best I could do. And it had to be good enough or else I couldn't continue the retreat. I'd be in dukkha. I'd just be suffering. And I really see now that it was the concentration that enabled the stability of mind to make that resolve and the metta that brought the kindness in that says, don't go there. You don't need to go into that abyss of depression and self-deprecation. So these two practices really come together to serve us. So I was able to just kind of take that deep breath, that kind of gulp, and keep going. And I'd like to say, and then everything opened up and it was wonderful. Well, it wasn't immediately. Um, It took some time, but because I kept going, my concentration did deepen. And in its deepening, it supported the metta. And I went through some huge rounds of purification 
that were incredibly intense, but also opened me up to deep states of self-acceptance. Out of those two coming together, and it's not just the metta and the concentration that came together, a big part of it was also equanimity, because it was the equanimity that enabled me to say, let's accept this. This is the way things are. And if I'm going to object to the way things are, I'm going to suffer. So this is a lot of what I wanted to talk about tonight, is metta, equanimity, and concentration, and how they all really come together in this beautiful way to support and enable our practice to deepen. So today we introduced the Brahma Vihara of equanimity. It's the last of the four Brahma Viharas. And as we said at the beginning, we like to, even though it's a metta retreat, include all of the Brahma Viharas because they each have something to add to the picture. They each have something to really bring to deepen our understanding. But equanimity is lost for a reason. It's challenging. It's challenging to hear these teachings about accepting things as they are and seeing that there's a lawful unfolding. But this quality, this mental factor of equanimity is actually often for many people the the quality that they intuit that draws them to meditation. You know, this possibility of peace, of calm, of acceptance. My, My image of equanimity is always like, you know, it's a it's hard to imagine on a day like today, but imagine it was a huge storm outside and wind and hail and rain and you finally get home and you go through the front door and you close the door and it's warm and quiet and peaceful inside. It's kind of like equanimity. We're in these storms of, of the world and, and equanimity offers this respite. Nyosho Kempo has this great little passage, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, Beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. So equanimity is this resting, but it's not a static state. It's a balance of mind that actually can open and hold the joy and the sorrow. It's not some static state where we, that we achieve and hang on to. It's really much more like the balancing act of the tightrope walker. Equanimity is when we think we can't cope and then we find we can. And we do that more than we give ourselves credit for. How many of you have said, I can't bear this another minute. I can't do this phrase another time. And yet here you are. You did. You bore it. Ajahn Sumedha, who have used a lot for stories, he's such a wonderful teacher. I really consider him my benefactor and great teacher talks about when he first ordained, he was one of, as far as I know, the first Westerners to ordain in Thailand back like in the 60s. And he's this big guy. He was a, a not a Marine, he was in the the Navy or something, but, you know, a big burly guy in this land in Thailand, you know, these petite, gentle people. And so he's wearing these robes that he can't fit on and it's hot and the food is terrible and the insects and the language problems and the practice and trying to look at his mind. And he said, I would have these moments where I'd say, I cannot bear this another moment. I cannot bear this anymore. And then he'd look and find that he could because he had to, because he did, because the next moment came and he was still there and alive and... And, and moving on. So we find that capacity to be with experience. All of us have that capacity. So it's not about not feeling, but really about fully experiencing what's happening without, and, our, and fully experiencing our emotions without letting our view be clouded by them, by not distorting them, by making them bigger, or repressing them, or denying them, 
but actually seeing clearly. We can then respond instead of reacting. We can respond to situations with some clarity. So I'm sure Spring um, introduced to you today that classic phrase of uh, equanimity. All beings are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. Well, we've just spent a week wishing them well. What's that all about? You know, <laughs> why have you been telling us that? And then you say it doesn't doesn't count. This is a big point of what we've been talking about in all the other Brahma Viharas. It's not so much about affecting people out there, though it can, and we don't know but it's about purifying our own hearts and minds and strengthening our ability to wish well in all of these different situations. When it's difficult, when it's easy, with the loved person, with the neutral or the difficult person, with the person that's struggling, with the person we chose for our equanimity practice, we realize, can we wish them well, care about them, and recognize that we can't control their happiness or unhappiness? We have to really recognize that. When we talk about karma, though, which just means action, volitional action, really important that it doesn't get to a blame game. This is not, oh, I did something wrong, I deserve to have this bad experience, or they deserve to have this bad experience. It's not about blame or fault. There's nothing in the text to point in that direction. But Gil Fronsdale has a good way of talking about, especially our own karma, we're not to blame, but we're responsible. It means once we bring mindfulness to our experience, we see this karmic unfolding. We can start to see very immediately the laws of cause and effect at work. But we don't have to hold on to you know, an identity of being um, bad or wrong in that. It actually is an opening to being in touch, in, in alignment with the way things are. So sometimes we just recommend using the simple phrase, just things are as they are, or may I accept things as they are, because this is the truth of things. As I said earlier, there was a cartoon I saw a while ago, showed a police car had just pulled someone over, and the policeman is obviously reading their rights, and the police car very clearly says LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department. I I think it actually should be, should have said uh, Marin County PD, but anyway, what the The uh, caption is, the cop is saying to the person, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Anything you can say can and will be held against you. You're a child of the universe. And whether you understand it or not, things are unfolding just as they should. (laughs) Even when you're getting busted. (laughs) But true equanimity isn't cold or indifferent. It's actually infused with metta. And that's what's really important to recognize about it. And vice versa, true metta is infused with equanimity. Again, Hajjan Sumedho, I don't know why I thought of so many Hajjan Sumedho stories, but this is one from Jack Cornfield. Um, He said when he first met Arjun Sumedho, it was many years ago. I mean, Arjun Sumedho was first ordained. Jack came in the next wave, maybe five or ten years later. So Arjun Sumedho was already this mythical figure of someone who did this ordaining and survived. And Jack went to visit him in his little kuti. He'd been a monk for five or ten years. And he said he walked into this kuti. Arjun Sumedho was sitting there, and he was covered in bees. And Jack's like... What's going on with these bees? And I, oh, and I just made this kind of, oh, the bees. You know, like he did, you know, it's like, oh, oh, the bees. Oh, right. Oh, they just swarmed into my kuti and they needed a place to stay. So I just let them live there and me and the bees share the kuti. And it was like, he, he just was okay with that as a living situation. But I really saw, you know, can you see how that's equanimity? But it's also metta. You know, the bees need a place to live. When I um, left Australia, I'm from Australia, I left there in 1980, and I went to Asia. I lived and traveled in Asia for about a year and a half, and I ended up living for about six months in McLeod Gunge, which is, if you know, Asia, India, is where the Dalai Lama lives. And I could almost say the Dalai Lama was my next-door neighbor because I lived on the very edge of McLeod, and the next building down, a few minutes' walk away, was the Tibetan Library, where I spent a lot of time, and the next compound to that was the Dalai Lama's uh, 
we call it palace, but it's just a compound kind of thing. Um, so it was wonderful. This is early 80s. He wasn't as famous then as he is now. So we'd hear, oh, the Dalai Lama is going to go open a nun's, uh, the breaking ground for a nun's um, monastery. And we'd trot over there, and there'd be the Dalai Lama and about 20 of us, and we'd shake his hand. Or, you know, when he'd come and go, we'd all line up as the car went by and wave. But one time, um, you know, there'd be hundreds of people, but still, you know, you're just hanging out there. And then one time we heard he was going to give this big teaching, big empowerment. So I really wanted to go. But by the time I got there, it was packed. You know, the, oh, sorry, the big temple, much bigger than this. And he's sitting up on the big throne. And of course, all the monks are first and then the nuns, of course. It's the way these things are. And then all the lay people. <laughs> but just packed, you know, packed out, you know, as far as you could see. And then all around the sides, wherever there were windows, it was packed. So we were obviously way too late to get in to hear what was happening. So I found a little window. It's kind of like where that light is, just looking down on the Dalai Lama, probably further away than this. And we were just peering in, and he's up there in his big throne, you know, the big hat and the bell and the doje and his mantra and, you know, people there and the drums and everything. It's this big deal. And, of course, we also didn't understand what was going on. So I'd look in for a little bit, and then just for something to do, I'd circumambulate. There, you know, it's a beautiful grounds, and they had prayer wheels. So we'd go around, and then I'd come back to my little spot and, you know, just be looking in as a Dalai Lama in the distance. Uh, and then one time I was there looking in, and I, he's looking around, and he's kind of smiling and waving. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, who's he, who's he looking at? And I realized, oh, he's, he's looking at me. <laughs> and there he is, you know, hundreds of people, this serious ceremony, and he'd seen me up there peering in. You know, there was a few of us, and he just, hi, hi. <laughs> I mean, it was just so sweet. Again, that's equanimity, that steadiness of mind in the midst of all this, and metta. It was just so beautiful. Spring spoke the other uh, night about that meeting when the Dalai Lama came and where they bowed together. So he was sitting right here. And the cool thing was Spirit Rock borrowed a chair from our living room for him to sit in. So I have a chair that the Dalai Lama sat in. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's now, what, 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that chair is getting rather threadbare. So true equanimity is going to be when we can actually recover that chair and let go of the material that the Dalai Lama sat in, because we're going to have to do it at some point. That will be equanimity. So equanimity and metta infuse each other. They're both really essential parts of our practice. Once the metta starts to balance a little, which is when the equanimity starts to manifest, you know, the purification, some of the rockiness, the hindrances aren't so present, the mind is steady, and the phrases start to become a little more um, effortless, they just keep rolling, then we might begin to notice the effects of concentration. Then we might begin to notice what's happening in the mind with this steadiness, these this energy that starts to come in practice. As I say, you know, we want to do this practice to create the metta and deepen the metta and the purification is really important, but it goes through cycles, what we call purity and purification. And the purification, we just have to be with whatever's coming up, you know, be as kind to it as we can, bring our mindfulness to it. But when the mind quietens and steadies and it's more in this mode of purity, we can feel the effects of concentration. What we're beginning to feel are the effects or the the, um, impact of what are called the jhana factors or the jhanic factors. These are five qualities of mind that we're always actually developing in meditation that when they come together and they've strengthened and balanced, they form the basis for the absorptions or the jhanas. So there there are these qualities, I'll go through each of them, you might might have started to notice them. The first two we always talk about together, they're called vitaka and vichara. The simple translations are aiming and sustaining, sometimes called directed thought and evaluation. They have in the Pali a a meaning of, of thought, but it really is that mental quality of mind that directs our energy towards the object, that's the vitaka, and the vichara sustains it. These are the building blocks of any meditation practice. 
Every time you've paid attention to the beginning of an in-breath and the duration of an in-breath, you've been cultivating vitaka and vichara. You just haven't perhaps known the word. So directing and sustaining. Some people say aiming and rubbing. It's that connecting and then staying with. But the thing about them is we do it again and again. It's not you sit down at the beginning of 45 minutes, aim the attention and sustain it for 45 minutes. This is something you do over and over and over again with an in-breath or an out-breath or a metaphrase or all these discrete components of experience. It's this willingness to begin again and again and again, to connect with the phrase and keep the mindfulness going over the whole phrase. So we establish this... um, foundation. These are the building blocks, the engine of our meditation practice. Now to actually cultivate Vitaka Vinchara requires effort, but it's got to be the right kind of effort. I talked earlier about concentration, how we think that, you know, huffing and puffing and really striving is going to get us there. We can never sustain enough Vitaka vichara, enough foundation of concentration through sheer force of will. It just doesn't happen. You can always get so far, but it always breaks. It always will break. What has to happen is some shift in our relationship to the meditation object that enables us to, what we say, fall in love with it. I, I learned a lot about this from a teacher I really appreciate called Ajahn Brahma. It's actually Ajahn Brahma Wang, so he's an English monk who's now living in Western Australia, and he teaches deep states of concentration. He talks about Subha Sanya. Subha means beautiful. Sanya means perception. So it's beautiful perception. And it's actually cultivating the perception that our meditation object is beautiful. And he mainly talks about this with the breath. So he talks about the beautiful breath. And you can really see that, that with the breath, I mean, it's not inherently exciting, right? Breathing. We've all done it how many times? A million times. So you have to fall in love with the breath to actually sustain the level of concentration you need to deepen. As I say this, perhaps you can see why metta is such a good object for concentration because we're cult- there's so many beautiful aspects to metta. There's just literally what the words mean. You know, may I be safe? May I be happy? You know, we want that. We want that for ourselves. We mightn't want to say it a million times, but we do want that for ourselves. There's the person we're sending metta to. You know, sometimes ourself, I know that's difficult, but, you know, hopefully you've gotten a taste of self-love or self-care, our benefactor friend. So many things to fall. The metta feeling itself, even a glimpse of that can actually support this um, deepening. And then, of course, once the concentration builds, the hindrances reduce, so the mind itself is a little sweeter. It's not so distracted. It's not so busy. So we have to fall in love with our meditation object. Once we do that, the third factor, jhanic factor, gets um, developed, and that's the factor of pity. It's usually translated as joy or bliss or rapture. I think those are little misleading because they make it sound like it's, it's all a lot of fun, and sometimes it isn't. It's intense sometimes. Other translations are rapt attention or zestful interest. When this factor starts to develop, so we've, we've, we've imbued the Vitaka Vichara, we've committed enough to be steady with that, this, we, we, we fall in love with the object. The mind is just happy to be where it is. It's not so distracted. It's not resisting. It's not coming up with stories. It's actually become somewhat effortless to stay steady with this object. It's like a magnetic attraction or resting in the bowl of a you. There's a, a imagery for practice that when we first start, it's like this pole or a, you know, anything round. Our mindfulness or our metta is like a ball at the top and it just easily rolls off. You know, it doesn't take anything. It just goes. And then eventually it flattens out where it's like this. And so the ball can still easily move, but it takes, it has to be pushed. But then eventually it becomes an upside down U and it's just resting there. It takes some effort to actually move it out of that. It can still move out, but it naturally drops back in. This is when this factor starts to develop. So 
pity is a mental factor, but we often experience it in the body um, through trembling or shaking or vibration or tingling or uplifting, pushing movements, you know, even pushing and pulling, kind of contracting movements, um, rocking, distortion of perception, lights, all of these are aspects of this factor. And I know that as soon as I start talking about this, people's eyes light up and they go, oh, I want that. How do I get that? You know, and they you know, start grasping after it. Remember what I said earlier, please, that the proximate cause is happiness or contentment. We can't go chasing after this. And actually, sometimes pity is actually unpleasant. It, it's so strong and so intense that we can't wait till it subsides. Um, and it's not always, it doesn't always have an emotional con- com- component, even though it's bliss or joy. Sometimes it's just energy. It's just this very absorbing kind of energy. So when this cycle, when the pity subsides, as it eventually will, like anything, it's conditioned, there's, there's an arc in this list, like there are in many lists. If you know the Buddha's list, you'll often see there's the energizing factors that sort of get us on, on the path, and then they peak, and then we go into the tranquilizing factors. Well, it's the same here. And so this arc from pity goes to the next factor, which is sukha, or happiness. One person likes to translate it as happy contentment of mind and body. Sukha, it's the opposite of dukkha. We talk a lot about dukkha, we don't talk so much about sukha, but sukha is really uh, a beautiful quality of mind. It's, it's a more subtle form of the rapture and can often be a real relief after the, sukha, after the pity. I can remember my first experience of sukha I felt like, you know those long um, pieces of seaweed called kelp that, you know, they're anchored and they're like, can be 30 feet long and they're sinewy. It was like I was a piece of one of those pieces of kelp floating in a sea of warm honey. Sukha has this sweetness to it. So again, you can see its relationship to the metta and how the metta can cultivate this quality of mind. So once the rapture subsides a little bit, we're still really connected, the hindrances aren't present, this sweetness starts to come through and the metta can really start to deepen and be integrated. And that then leads us, the mind is steady, it's contented, it's, it's applied to the object, to the last factor, which is ekagata, one-pointedness. One-pointedness or non-distraction. Even though it says one and one-pointedness, it's not necessarily narrow, though. It can be. It can be uh, very refined. But Ajahn Sumedho says, Ekagata is the one point that includes everything, which is now. It's this moment. It includes everything. Yet there's this one moment, this one point, this place of connection. It's often used as a synonym, actually, for concentration, um, it, it, has a, it also has a little bit of the flavor of equanimity. So again, the, these are these different qualities and how they come together. It's, a, it's an experience of contentment. And it's a, a shift where we realize we don't have to look for our happiness outside, that this inner experience itself can reveal states of contentment and peace and ease that we will never find in chasing objects or experience outside of us. So it's a real shift for us, this ekagata. When these factors come into balance and strengthen, that's what begins the process of deepening into absorption or jhana. I won't talk much about that because that can take weeks. You know, don't feel bad or critical of yourself if you haven't tasted even any of these. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a sense of how this practice develops in concentration because we don't often talk a lot about it, especially in um, the regular Vipassana retreats. But you can perhaps recognize little bits of all of these qualities. You You know them already. And it's just a question of developing them. The only ones we have any influence over are vitaka and vichara, aiming and sustaining. It's that willingness to just keep going, whether it's with the breath or any other object, but certainly with the phrases. When we do that, 
all of these factors come together to support us. The jhanic factors, the equanimity, the concentration. And then the path really has the potential to deepen. As the metta does its work of helping us to accept all aspects of our experience, both in the moment, right here, our body, our minds, our direct experience, our past, our relationships, and it sweetens that, wisdom naturally grows. We start to see more clearly because we're not in conflict so much anymore. As the conflict lessens, as the degree of acceptance deepens, the equanimity deepens, the concentration can also start to kick in. So you kind of see how they all really support each other. As the concentration stabilizes the mind, the metta becomes more effortless, and we're able to deepen in that way and not get so uh, caught up in distraction and restlessness. I really see restlessness as a major hindrance for Westerners. You know, do you relate to what I'm saying? This is busyness of mind. I just, you know, that moment, you know, there's times I can't bear this anymore because there's so much going on and so intense. And what about this? We get lost in thinking about the past, worrying about the future. And even if we're in the present moment, we're comparing and judging. So wherever the mind is, it's got this sense of agitation to it. So really to see that these practices can address this major hindrance of restlessness. If we're willing to give up the story of I, this obsession with, am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? To see how much of our mental energy we spend addressing that question and really start to trust that in some fundamental way, we are okay that the metta really starts to resolve that question so we don't have to live in this state of perpetual anxiety and worry and regret and remorse, this trust in ourself and our experience. I just found a cartoon, actually. It's a couple coming out of a meditation center. They've got their mats under their arms, and they're coming out of the meditation center, and the man's saying, as far as I can tell, meditation is just worrying minus the content. (laughs) I don't think that's the case, but, you know, there's many misunderstandings of of what we're doing here, but why I thought that was useful is so much of our time is spent worrying. And it is the content. You know, we're not without the content. We're actually worrying about past and future and and this, you know, am I okay? I'm not okay. Am I okay? I'm not okay. Was I okay? Will I be okay? How do we actually just land in the moment with this profound degree of acceptance that enables us to start trusting ourselves, trusting our experience, trusting our capacity to open. Metta brings this possibility. I really think of metta as saying yes. Yes to life. Yes to me. Yes to you. Yes to experience. There's a great Rumi poem, and I'll probably misquote it. I, me, you, he, she. In the garden of mystic lovers, such distinctions are irrelevant. And that's really a metta poem, you know, because it's talking about the transcendent metta where there isn't a sense of me, you know, me, deficient me, trying to generate metta, wishing it for you, but actually just metta. We tap into, we access this quality of metta, and we feel all of these factors coming together. And we can trust that. We can trust ourselves, we can trust our capacity to open and actually feel the depth and the breadth of this practice and how onward leading it is for us. Sharon Salzburg, she's our Meta Queen. She's written our Meta Bible, which is her great book. I'm sure they'll sell it at the end of the retreat. Loving Kindness, A Revolutionary Art of Happiness. You should all read it if you haven't already. She says, Equanimity endows loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy with their sense of patience, that ability to be constant and to endure, even if the love, sympathy, 
sympathy or rejoicing is unreturned, even through all of the ups and downs. The other Brahma-viharas owe their boundless nature to equanimity, that ability to embrace all beings impartially. So they all infuse each other. We just have to marinate in them, stew in them, let them do their work. We don't have to do so much. We do have to keep the phrases going. We have to keep the intention going. But the rest, we can start to trust. This basic okayness. So I want to finish with another poem by Hafez, It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. And I like this because I think what we feel is the encouragement of metta against our being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. It's the metta that brings the light to the dark places, that allows ourselves, allows us to accept ourselves just as we are, and allows us to turn towards what's difficult, to go through those cycles of purification, but through that to deepen and continue to deepen our acceptance of ourselves and our our love and our care. And once we do that, true freedom is really possible. This is the way this path goes as we open and deepen through metta, equanimity, and concentration. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Let the words settle. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of metta against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.